today on the show. What do missionaries get wrong when they show up on the field? We discovered that there was a gospel preaching church less than a quarter mile from our house. And of course, we're in a context where churches aren't buildings with steeples and they don't have websites or signs out front. And we just didn't know they existed. And there was this small struggling community of faith where they weren't in error. They were just wonderful. And we ended up joining that fellowship, honestly. But I felt ashamed because here I am trying to start something new and I'm unaware that God's already at work. And later, some within that church even asked us, why do Westerners come here and not ask us about how they go about coming? Why is it that you just do things your own way? Elliot Clark, author of Mission Affirmed, Recovering the Missionary Motivation of Paul, shares lessons learned along the way. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE, joined again for another time here in the saddle of the show with Scott W. Dunford, who is out on the West Coast doing pastoral things, doing things for ABWE as well. I'm not always sure how to introduce you, Scott. What, what title are you using for yourself? So just so our listeners know, kind of the internal conversation here is that your role changed slightly and, and you're on a contract with ABWE, mostly focused on the podcast. So, so what are your, what, what's your preferred nouns, Scott? <laughs> My preferred noun is pastor. I love that one. And, uh, <laughs> And then, um, you know, my, my secondary, I'm vice president for Bayseed uh, International or Bayseed oh. uh, Collective, which is a church planting work that we're doing here in the Bay Area. And then uh, I'm a, I, I consider myself just the co-host of the Missions Podcast. That's what I would like my title to be for this. All right. Well, speaking of preferred names, uh, we have a guest who I'm very excited to introduce in, in just a minute. And we'll be referring to him by his public name because we want to protect the important ministry that he's a part of. But there's a wave of important resources and books that have been coming out lately. So we've talked on the show with E.D. Burns about some of the books that he's published in the area of missions. Uh, there's a new Nine Marks volume out about there's no shortcuts for missions either. And of course, our listeners know that myself, uh, me and Chad Vegas put out a book on missions recently. But what I'm seeing that I'm excited about is there's a there's a wave of new writing coming that's saying, hey, we believe in biblically what a local church is. We believe in the importance of the gospel. We believe in sound doctrine. We believe in all of these things. So let's talk about methods and let's talk about the character of a missionary and let's talk about what our mission work should be like. So in other words, everything this show has always talked about, helping goers think and thinkers go. And this book uh, that we're going to talk to the author today, it's one in that same lineup, I would say, Scott, right? Yeah, sure, sure would. And uh, excited to kind of dive into this with our friend Elliot. And uh, we'll just dive right in here to these questions. So obviously these, these things are written not in a vacuum. There's things that are going on in your head, not just things you're reading biblically, but also things you're experiencing in ministry. You've got a long ministry experience of serving in Central Asia and some very difficult places. Um, and now with your work, working with uh, churches around the world and training leaders, uh, what do you see happening right now in the mission world that motivated you to write this book? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, just want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm a happily a regular listener, enjoy so many of the conversations that are on here. And uh, this book is just meant to be uh, contributing to that ongoing conversation. But yes, I, I am concerned 
in some ways by the things that I'm seeing in the mission world. And yet I'm also encouraged by many things. Um, so there, the last 40, 50 years, there's been a good and necessary desire to reach the unreached, which I would wholeheartedly affirm. But along with that has grown what I see to be an unhelpful emphasis on speed. And, and alongside that, I would say that we even maybe within our own camp, we would see those who present urgent appeals for missionary action in a way that sometimes isn't well thought out. And, and you have kind of this volunteerism in missions that thinks everybody should be going. Or we all have something that we should be doing. And we do, but I just am convinced we need to be careful about those whom we approve and send as representatives of the gospel around the world. I also just see maybe along with that need for speed is the use of Paul's example to justify that. But I think sometimes Paul's example is oversimplified and we don't take the time to really look at what led him to make his decisions. Because there is speed in Paul sometimes, right? Absolutely, there is speed. But the challenge is when you think about the attending circumstances, where in what city do we find Paul not being kicked out of prior to his desire to leave? And all the way from Damascus at the beginning and throughout, and even he leaves Corinth on the final his final visit there, and we learn he's basically running for his life again. So the cities, even like Ephesus, Corinth, where he stays the longest, we have reason to believe Paul was forced out there as well. So it's hard to make a model for speed based on Paul's example. Yeah, I mean, there are many things I could say. I would say one of the other areas that I appreciate is a growing understanding or desire to understand culture and desire to contextualize. And yet I'm concerned by some of those efforts. And, and along with that, there are a lot of conversations now about honor and shame dynamics within the missionary task. What I notice though is we're often thinking in terms of honor and shame related to the message sure. and those who will receive it. But we haven't thought much about honor and shame for the messenger, for the one who brings the gospel. And this is where I see Paul's example uh, and try to highlight it in, in this book, Mission Affirmed, is that Paul was concerned for the possibility of shame on the last day and as well, deeply motivated by God's commendation. So the hope of receiving Praise from God on the final day is a significant motivator. And I, I think that ends up affecting Paul's contextualization and, and many other decisions he makes along mm -hmm. the way. So you've already kind of alluded to it. So the guest is Elliot Clark. The book is Mission Affirmed. Now, the title sounds like you're making a statement about missions in general, but really you're also making a specific statement about Paul's life. So you kind of got at it already. What did Paul expect would happen at the end of his life, at the end of his mission, and why does it matter? Well, I mean, I can speak to what Paul expected, but I think it applies to all believers. So he can say, 2 Corinthians 5, that we all must appear before the judgment seat, the bema, and receive what is due on that day. And so Paul's vision here, I think, is for himself, and that, that vision affects his ministry, right? Knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, we persuade others. Uh, I make it my aim to please God. But yet that's not just individually, because Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 14 also envisions a corporate account. So he will stand before the Lord along with those from his ministry in Corinth or Thessalonica or Philippi. And as we see throughout his letters, he's anticipating glory, joy, a boast, a crown of rejoicing 
and, and this kind of mutual boasting that those who've been reached through his ministry, those who have, have grown in faith, will then rejoice over Paul before the Lord as he will of them, which is a, I think, just a compelling vision for what the day of the Lord can be. And of course, then you have other passages in like 1 Corinthians 3, um, where Paul talks about the reward, where some uh, who build in God's temple, who work and labor, are going to receive a reward, and others are going to suffer loss. The efforts that they've put in are just going to be an ash heap on the last day. And so I think that end-day vision, the day of the Lord, weighed heavily on Paul's mind and thinking in, in all of his ministry and how he relates to getting the gospel to new places, but then how he thinks about those that are already reached and, and what it will mean for them to continue in the faith. So interesting. And I think all Christians kind of feel like this tension, especially Christians who are trying to think deeply about their life and ministry. I see it a lot, you know, within kind of the Calvinistic circles that I tend to run in where where you've just got this like strange conflict between uh, extreme confidence at the end of what's going to happen, but also kind of like a, a loathing or a a feeling of unworthiness at the same time. And you address that and you're talking about Paul, particularly like this idea of, of his assurance of justification, which is clear in multiple places in the new Testament and Paul's writings, but with this um, also just a desire and a concern that, that when he does stand before the Lord, he'll receive final approval for the Lord. So how do you hold those two things together? That confidence, that, yeah, God's working out my justification. It's, it's my my glorification is assured, but also that uh, that that internal motivation and desire to make sure that we're being approved by God. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think it's the natural and obvious question to ask if you read the book. I don't actually address it so much in the book itself, but it is absolutely necessary to think about these things. And we could look, I suppose, at a lot of texts, but 2 Corinthians 5, again, is at the forefront of my mind in thinking about these things. So if, you, if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, Paul begins by talking about this body that he's going to lay aside. He's going to be raised with Christ and put on immortality. And, and he has confidence there. And so Paul, in one sense, because of the presence of the Spirit within him and the promise of God before him, he has amazing assurance and confidence. And yet he can say, 2 Corinthians 5, so if I just look here, he says, verse 6, we are always of good courage. So he, he has an amazing confidence and assurance through the testimony of the Spirit. And yet that assurance is not at odds in any way with Paul saying in that very same paragraph that I make it my aim to please God and that he knows he will give an account one day for what he does in the body, everything. And so I think we have to hold those two together. I'm not going to be able to answer that completely right now, or maybe we won't in this life. But I think for Paul, it's important to see faithfulness is of utmost importance, and yet it's not divorced from fruitfulness. And I see this in the Reformed world, where we emphasize that faithfulness rightly, but we, we can de-emphasize what God might do through our work and, and the fruitfulness. And so, yeah, you just have this seeming contradiction in Paul, where he's sealed by the Spirit, utmost confidence, in God's work through him. And yet he can say to the Corinthians, you are the seal of my apostleship. And you just want to say, which is it, Paul? I mean, 2 Corinthians 3, he's saying, you're my letter of recommendation and the demonstration that this new covenant ministry by the Spirit is really happening through me. So I can't fully answer that question, but I, what I wouldn't want us to do is to ever pit our assurance through the finished work of Christ against what I see throughout Paul mm. 
and that being that his life matters. His anxiety for the churches, for all the churches, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, that just fills him, his ministry, whether it's concern for the Thessalonians because he had to leave too early, or the Corinthians because they're struggling in sin. This anxiety is bubbling up within him. So again, Paul is a complex character, mm. and he can have assurance, deep assurance, and anxiety side by side. And it almost gets at some of the sanctification controversy that's been happening in Reformed and evangelical circles for the last several years. Basically, are we sanctified? Do we grow in our walk with the Lord by only meditating upon the the once-for-all justification that happened at our conversion? Uh, Or is there something more to sanctification than that as part of the whole package deal of salvation? And yeah, for, for Paul, it doesn't seem that he ever does feel a tension between his zeal to be used for the Lord in the mission and the the no condemnation verdict of Romans 8 1, right? He had he had both of those impulses, the the settled rest in the gospel itself, and yet this this burden. Um it was a it was a joyful burden, yeah. but but uh, a, a burden and a privilege and a responsibility nonetheless. So help us connect this with the apostles' conversion. Uh you make reference to his conversion being his moment of defeat like his moment of defeat in battle. And then you tie it in with that triumphal procession motif that happens in second Corinthians. And I think there's something really profound there that gives us a a visual image of, of who the missionary is in their relationship with Christ. Can you unpack that for us? Um, Yeah, sure. So Paul says in second Corinthians two, that God leads us. And so he's not just referring to himself here as, as much as this book's about Paul, it's uh, representative of him and his fellow workers, all these Things are true of them, I believe, as well. So Paul says, God's leading us in triumphal procession. It should put it in the context, I guess, a little bit of what's going on in Corinth. So Paul has begun to receive criticism from those within the church that he suffers too much and that his travel itinerary is constantly changing. And so Paul seeks to defend his apostleship to the Corinthians and his decision-making. And a critical juncture in, in chapter two, then he, he brings up when he talks about the change of travel plans that he's made, that God is leading him in this triumphal procession. And so that would have triggered for the Corinthians a clear image, something they knew well in that day and time. Military leaders would uh, return from victory. They parade through the streets with the spoils of war behind them. Ultimately, those spoils would be executed usually. But in this analogy, Paul's essentially saying, God is leading me as the spoils of his victory, Christ's victory on the cross. And so while Paul's traipsing all... And Paul is executed at the end of that. He is, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And while Paul's traipsing around the the Mediterranean, shamed and stoned and running for his life, he believes that God is (laughs) leading him all along the way. And this is exactly God's plan for him when he called him Mm. and saved him. And honestly, we see that on the road to Damascus, right? He's told what things he must suffer. And so for Paul, suffering and even changing travel plans aren't a demonstration of his failure as an apostle, but they authenticate in many ways that he is being led by Christ. And he's not making his plans based on arbitrary decisions or selfish ambition. He's doing this all for their sake and God's at work. So so again, in the context, Paul's saying this is an aroma of death to death, life to life. And so in many ways, his suffering and shame is the means God is using to bring about the salvation of others. Yeah, I'd like to go a little bit deeper on that question of that idea of his sense of shame. So 
one of the things you write in the book uh, that might, you know, uh, shock some people initially is that we could become too gospel centered. You say we've become so gospel centered that maybe we've forgotten how Paul was motivated by a legitimate sense of shame. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. And probably a provocative statement, I suppose. But in one sense, I don't think anybody can be too gospel-centered. I think, though, in some ways, we have perhaps an imbalance in the way we are centered on the gospel. Mm. So if we are only looking in this kind of rearview mirror, looking back at the cross and our justification, we miss out on the forward-facing vision of Paul and how his view of the final day was both motivating and also regulating on his missionary enterprise. So if I'm completely justified and have no possibility for shame on the final day, then what do I have to worry about in the way I contextualize or the way I go about my ministry? But for Paul, no, absolutely not. He knew, so he can write to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, probably very familiar to your listeners. Timothy, don't just be passive in this. You need to study so that you are approved by God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed on the final day. So if only Timothy should be thinking about God's verdict of justification, by which he has no cause for concern, he is totally forgiven and all is good, then that kind of instruction just makes no sense. That you need to think about your approval before God, and you need to think about not being ashamed on the final day. And I just think that's reflective in a lot of evangelicalism, that kind of thinking today that God couldn't be more pleased with you than he already is. Well, that Again, that doesn't square with Paul saying, I make it my aim to please God, or there's nothing you could do to change God's love for you. Well, there's an element of truth to that, but I think there's also an element that is absolutely wrong and seems out of balance with what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, that you experience the dynamic presence and love of God as we obey his commands in real and powerful ways. So here, I think just our theology matters and the way we think about God and the gospel affects, yes, here at home, our own discipleship, but also the way we conduct our ministry. Just to give an example again from Paul. So if he's only thinking in terms of his secure state as a justified sinner, and of course, I heartily affirm justification by faith, imputed righteousness right. of Christ. Right, I have no, right. no hesitancy at all, just to make that clear to your listeners. But <laughs> how do we look at Paul's example when he says, well, actually in Corinth, as a matter of fact, he preaches the gospel and they reject it. And he says, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of your blood. Or he says later to the Ephesian elders, I'm innocent of the blood of all. Why? And what is the basis for such innocence? It's because he's been faithful to proclaim the gospel to them. And if they turn from it, he can't be held liable for the failure to preach the gospel. So if our good and necessary commitment to justification obscures our ability to live with that kind of a an understanding that we will be held accountable for our lives for everything that we do in the body mm. paul says I, I think we're we're missing out if we can't have that perspective so to move away from just the example of the apostle paul let's make it mm -hmm. a little bit personal one of the things that you say in the book is that as you've studied the life and example of Paul in this idea of living with the end in mind and the approval of the Lord in mind, that you would have done a few things differently along the way. So we know that you're limited in how much you can share uh, because of some of the countries where you've worked and the, the partners that you've been able to connect to. But tell us a little bit about that. What would you have done differently 
with some of the lessons that you've learned through this project? Well, I think I would definitely, uh, without a doubt, I would depend more on locals. So when we first arrived on the field, we we were church planters. We were excited about what we were we were there for. We were in a very unreached area, and so we we set about. We built a team. We started trying to do church planting. We were meeting in our homes as along with some other expats, and we started inviting locals. We were reaching out through evangelism. Uh, some began to come. I think a year after that, within probably eight to twelve months, we discovered that there was a gospel preaching church less than a quarter mile from our house. And of course, we're in a context where churches aren't these buildings with steeples and they don't have websites or signs out front. And we just didn't know they existed. Mm. And there was this small struggling community of faith. They weren't in error. They weren't, uh, they were just wonderful. And we ended up joining that fellowship, honestly. But I felt ashamed because here I am trying to start something new and I'm unaware that God's already at work. Mm. And later, some within that church even asked us, why do Westerners come here and not ask us about how they go about coming or where they're going to land or how they're going to do ministry? Why is it that you just do things your own way? That's a question you don't want to hear from local believers. So I would have depended more on them, both in before arriving, but also along the way as we made some strategic decisions to go into even more unreached areas. I felt the need to go as fast as I could. I didn't see other ones, other people going, but as a result, I think we, our ministry wasn't as fruitful as it could have been if we'd had meaningful partnership with the local church to go alongside them. So I, I connect this in the book to Paul's example, honestly. I, I think it's fascinating to consider why when he wants to go to Spain, he writes to the Romans. I don't know that we have an answer to that, but it's certainly fascinating to think about that he would want their participation in his ministry to Spain. Maybe he was going to get a Latin speaker in Rome to go with him. I don't know. But I also would go slower, and that connects there as well. So we felt the urgent need of the hour demanded that we go as fast as we could. And I think as a result, I don't think I know that we failed in some ways to be as effective as we could have been if we had gone slower and gone with others. And Oh, I don't know. I don't want to talk too much about myself. I, I do think, as I'm probably in my study of Paul, the thing that's maybe the thing that's most transformed me in this study is Paul's deep concern for long-term fruitfulness. Absolutely, Paul is committed to faithfulness. Faithfulness to the gospel, not tampering with God's word. But my goodness, he is so passionate about mm. the fruitfulness of his work that he is Romans 15, right? The text where we we go to to think about Spain and Paul's pioneer spirit, which absolutely is there. Mm. And yet Paul is saying, writing from Corinth, right, where this church is just a mess. And he says he's concerned about what he's going to present to the Lord on the final day. And he says, I have reason, he says, to be proud of my work for God. Mm. Again, that's that's another area where we just, we would never talk like Paul. We would never say, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And yet, I mean, we're left with a few options. Is Paul mistaken? Or is there a sense in which we should be able to stand before the Lord one day and point to the fruit that's transformed by the Spirit and faithful to the gospel? And we can say, look, Lord, by your grace, this is what I've done. I think I would have cared much more deeply about that fruitfulness uh, 
long term. I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, partly because I have tendencies to just want to move fast and I get get frustrated quickly. And, and uh, you know, I feel like at 45, I'm starting to recognize patterns and can fight them a little bit better. But God put a, an example in my life of this pastor who's been pastoring the same church in a very difficult area to pastor for 45 years. He started in that ministry when I was born. And mm. uh, his best year of ministry was year 38. Uh, and I, you know, I think about that a lot because I, I'm wondering sometimes why in year three, four, uh, one, why things aren't happening the way I want them to happen. But sometimes it isn't until year 38 that you see the full fruit of the work that you're doing. And uh, I think that's such a good word. And it's hard for, I think, young, our young missionaries to hear that or young pastors that are listening to hear that and listen. But uh, if you listen to enough of us old heads, even the ones that weren't so patient, you you start to realize, hey, there's something to listen to here. And uh, check yourself when you're starting to feel like that wandering eye or that, that, uh, that, that, that just prone to move on to the next big thing or just frustration that things aren't fast enough. And if I could bring something else up there too, I think not only is that something deeply personal that we need to meditate on, I think there's a beauty there's a beauty in the similarity there between what happens between Christ and the Father and what happens between us and the Father or us and Christ. And what I mean is in the covenant of redemption, the agreement between the Father and Son before the foundation of the world to save a people for his name, right? However you want to parse the details of that theologically and what terms you want to apply to it, there's an agreement in the Godhead to do that prior to uh, creation, uh, logically speaking, prior to creation. And Christ, at the end of history, at the end of his kingdom, in 1 Corinthians 15, gives the kingdom over to the Father, right? Here here are the ones you gave me. I give them back to you, essentially, right? You see that in, in John as well. There's that, there's that giving to the Father back, this gift of this kingdom that's now consummated, of this people that's redeemed, that Christ himself died to redeem. And you think, what does Paul mean in other passages in the New Testament where he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for you? Um, what could possibly be lacking in Christ's sufferings? And yet, in a similar, and it's analogous, it's it's not identical, but just, just as Christ is giving his people, all of them, to the Father perfectly for salvation, there's a much smaller sense in which we get to participate in that, that those who pastor, those who shepherd others, those who win them to the Lord through through missions, through evangelism, through making disciples, give them to Christ, right? And and say, here are here are your people. And I and I think the challenge is we we don't think that we get to do that. We don't think that we get to to claim credit. And and yet we do. And how much more serious should we be about that knowing that that when we mm-hmm. come into the Lord's presence, we want to be able to bring other people with us and also mm-hmm. say, here you go, Lord. Uh, and I think that's a powerful motivator there. Yeah, I think I, I am thinking about dynamics of honor and shame throughout this book. But as you as you read the literature on honor and shame cultures, probably more significant than that, than dynamics of honor and shame are just collectivist versus individualist societies. And and I think for many of us, there are strengths, of course, to our background, an emphasis on individual responsibility. But we can be tempted in the missionary endeavor to be independent agents who are disconnected from the local church, not sent out as approved representatives by our own local church. We can be those who land on the field and do our work. As I mentioned, 
independently of, of local believers or other national Christians and churches. Mm-hmm. I just see an independent streak through, throughout the mission community in the West. And that vision, though, of this mm. standing before the Lord, Paul standing before the Lord, and imagine presenting the Philippians, the Macedonians, the Galatians, and you could just feel it in his heart. I want to present you, Corinthians, yeah. <laughs> before the Lord with joy. Yeah, And he doesn't know if he can't. And so that creates all kind of missionary angst for him. And again, what's fascinating, add just one more layer to it. Paul expects that joy and crown of rejoicing to be shared by those who financially contribute to his work. That's the letter of Philippians. So I think we can only imagine how amazing that final day will be when there will be celebration, gratitude, uh, ultimately praise to God. Because I think whatever glory, praise, and crown that we receive from from God. I mean, absolutely, what's going to happen? Mm. We're just going to fall on our knees and lay it at his feet because it's all of grace. It's all because of what he's done through us. And to just bring it full circle, we started at the beginning by saying that you wrote this because you're worried about the need for speed that you see in the missions world. That's something, you know, that's what we're worried about here too. And if we had this mindset, you know, you see Paul is fast and sometimes he's in one town and out of another. And yet you read his letters, you get the sense he would have spent a lifetime with the Corinthians if he could have. Right. You really get that sense. And I had somebody brag to me one time, uh, a missionary, not with ABWE. OK, um, but I had a missionary brag that they had planted a, a, a church and led a whole village to the Lord in a weekend and then left. And they were proud that they had been able to leave in a weekend. And. I think we can solve that if we're recognizing, hey, you're going to present these people to the Lord. Don't you want that gift, that offering to be worthy of the Lord? I think that right there, that's a powerful motivator to get us not just to do things as quickly as possible, but to do them as well as we can. Yeah. Again, this isn't the only motivation for Paul, as I reference in the book. I mean, the big motivations, the glory of God, the salvation of sinners. So Paul, I mean, He's absolutely passionate to get to the places where the gospel needs to go. There's no, in any way, I don't want to diminish that in any way. And yet, he writes in 2 Corinthians 10, I can't go to new places until I'm confident of your faith. Mm. So whatever we want to say about Romans 15 and Paul's ambition to go to new places, i.e. Spain, it's important to recognize he writes that on his third visit to Corinth, after four letters, after multiple representatives going there, and when he's being kicked out of the city. And that's when he says, I'm going to Spain. But otherwise, Paul's not willing to just go into, press into new fields willy-nilly. He only feels freedom to do so until he's fulfilled his responsibilities elsewhere. Or he just has no opportunity to return to those places. I think you've done a great job of helping us uh, want to read the book. And uh, check that out and learn more about uh, some of these thoughts that you're developing there. So how can people find out, find the book? Uh, and also, how can they find out more of the things you're writing and, and working on? Sure. The book's available through Crossway. It's, it's at any of your favorite booksellers online, or I, I don't know if it's in stores. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, you can get it at Amazon or through other online retailers. My writing appears at the Gospel Coalition. I occasionally contribute to Desiring God or Nine Marks or, or some other places on occasion. But yeah, I, I would love for people to pick up the book. I would say 
The book is absolutely geared toward missionaries first, as those who desire God's approval on the final day. But because of this collective accounting, I am concerned that churches, those who send and support missionaries, also desire that same approval. So hopefully the book is is accessible to both missionaries, but also pastors and and lay leaders in the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, uh, we were interviewing a missionary candidate from our church. I'm the head of our missions committee, and I copied and pasted the list of questions that you have at the end of your book, questions for a missionary candidate, and I sent them in an email to this candidate, and he answered all of them thoroughly. <laughs> so there you go. It is bearing fruit, and and there is that useful resource in the back there. Well, Elliot, we're thankful that you could be with us, and for all of you listening or watching, we're thankful that you could be with us too. The Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. For more, go to abwe.org slash podcast or missionspodcast.com. And remember to subscribe to get updated when there's new content. Also share the show and leave a positive review and rating on your favorite podcast platform. That'll help get this content in front of others who can be blessed by it. And of course, everything that we do here depends upon you. And so you can go to missionspodcast.com support to show your support for the show as well. And we value your partnership. Thank you for listening today and we'll see you next week.